Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. I know last week I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger ending. Okay, cliffhanger might be a bit dramatic, but I did leave last week's episode without giving much of the stuff I love giving most which is the practical tools to help manage the shit. Apologies if you did feel like it was a cliffhanger. At the end of the day, there's only so much I can pack into a 20-ish minute episode that fits on your commute to work. I'll try to do better today at giving you something you can hang your hat on, because as we get further into this series we're calling Trigger Happy, we're digging into whether avoidance is a strategy we should be using to manage trauma and stress-related triggering. That's today's focus. And then from here, we'll be spending the next couple of weeks getting even more practical as we dig into trigger management and trigger prevention tools. As we open today's topic on the avoidance stance, I want to acknowledge that avoidance is a totally normal reaction to things that are uncomfortable or actively painful. We avoid all kinds of things that we've had previous experience with or exposure to that has taught us that we don't want to do it again. Avoidance is a stress reaction that comes from having learned something. We talked about this last week. If we think back to caveman times and I go down a path and I'm confronted with a bear, my brain is going to take a multi-sensory movie that remembers the smell of sweet berries and the sound of a gurgling stream And the next time I head down a path with the same scent and sound, my brain is going to be triggered in an effort to help me avoid another close call with big jaws and sharp claws. In that kind of a context, it can be a really good thing that we learn from our exposure to stressful stimuli in an effort to support our actual survival. The challenge is that these avoidance prompts can become bigger or more generalized than is helpful to us. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of learned helplessness. For those who haven't taken a psych class in a long time, let's do a quick review. Back in the 1960s, Martin Seligman did research involving dogs. PETA would have a field day with this research now, but at the time it was common practice. That said, for those bothered by animal research, this is a trigger warning, which is kind of ironic given our topic today. Seligman's research was on classical conditioning, 
which is about the relationship that forms between two stimuli when they are consistently presented together. In this case, when a bell would ring, the dog would get a mild electric shock. After a short time of being presented together, the dogs would show a reaction as if they were being shocked whenever the bell would ring, even if the shock wasn't administered. The bell became such a strong warning sign of the impending shock that the dogs came to assume and physiologically respond as if the shock had happened simply because the bell rang. The researchers then took this one step further. They built a cage with two sections divided by a low fence that could easily be jumped by the dogs. One side of the cage was able to administer a mild electric shock and the other side was electricity free. The dogs were placed on the side with the shock and for any dogs who had not previously been in the bell experiment, they would quickly jump the fence to be free from the shock. Meanwhile, the ones who had been a part of the bell experiment just laid down and didn't even bother trying to find out if they could get away from the shock. This is what Seligman termed learned helplessness. The dogs had learned that they couldn't escape or evade their fate, even though in this case, they could have. The learning became so deeply held that they gave up trying and just stayed in it. Now, here's where the research becomes interesting for our purposes. After they completed this phase of the research, they asked a new question. Can we break associations once they've been made? Essentially, can we reverse learned helplessness? And the answer is yes. In the case of the dogs, the researchers tried a number of things, including demonstrations of them stepping over the fence, bribery with a reward, as well as punishment to try to get the dogs to jump over to the non-electrified side of the cage. But the thing that worked was when the researchers physically picked up the dogs and moved them. When the dogs were forcibly given the opportunity to see for themselves that this side would be different, it made a difference. After two times of being carried over, the dogs started to regain their capacity for curiosity and were able to direct this toward their self-preservation rather than by trying to conserve energy by lying down and waiting out the pain. Similarly, the researchers would ring the bell and not administer the shock. And while the dogs continued to have a physiological reaction as if they were being shocked for a little while, after several repetitions, the dogs learned that the bell was no longer associated with the shock. This process of unlearning a conditioned association is called extinction. We're extinguishing the connection and the related reaction. Okay, so what does this mean for us as humans almost 80 years later? Well, there are three key learnings I think we can draw from this that relates to stress exposure and the question of avoidance as a coping tool for dealing with triggering. First, 
Triggering is simply a more nuanced version of conditioning. In the Seligman studies, the conditioned stimuli are easily identifiable. Bell, shock, fear. Put those three together enough times, bell, shock, fear, and bell will yield fear even in the absence of shock. In life, we rarely get such clean examples. While facets of a stress-inducing or traumatic event can feel clear or obvious, others can feel far more difficult to identify. For example, in a car accident, it might seem obvious that the survivor might develop a triggering reaction to driving or driving in conditions that are similar to the accident, like at night or in the rain, and maybe even to just being in a car or thinking about being in a car. Those are the easy ones. They feel clearly related. But there are far more subtle connections that can also be made. For example, if the accident happened after leaving the house following an argument with a parent or spouse, the feeling of being angry can become a trigger because it was present at the time of the incident and serves as a connection to what happened. If the accident happened in a rural area with the smell of farms and manure, or near a fast food joint in all its greasy glory, these prompts can be so subtle that they're not even consciously in our awareness. But then we go to grab a burger and experience a flurry of flashbacks and feel totally insane. Remember last week we talked about why triggering exists? That its intention within your brain is for survival purposes? which is your brain's absolute top priority and objective. While it can be extremely uncomfortable, inconvenient, and sometimes even newly dangerous, having panic attacks while driving is not safe for anyone on the road, it's for a reason, and it's trying to do the important job of keeping you safe by giving you an alert system. The second thing we can take from Seligman's research is that avoiding exposure on the front end is a good idea. If we can prevent the consistency of exposure to the pairing of stimuli, we can reduce the power of the connection and the degree of damage we suffer as a result. This is where trigger prevention measures come into play. If we can work to provide ourselves with a buffer a protective layer that helps us keep our prefrontal cortex active during stressful events, we can reduce the consistency with which triggers are paired with events that feel significantly negative. What if, in the dog studies, the bell were paired with the shock sometimes but not all the time? And it was paired with getting delicious food sometimes but not all the time? And it was paired with getting pets and cuddles, sometimes but not all the time. And it was paired with getting a bath, sometimes but not all the time. If the stimuli, the bell, were presented in a host of situations that evoked positive, negative, and neutral feelings, it would likely become background noise, not specifically becoming a hallmark of anything in particular. Similarly, if we can build experiences that evoke a variety of feelings with the things that could otherwise become triggers, we can be proactive at nipping triggering in the bud. 
Another way we can prevent the consistency of exposure to the pairing of stimuli is by reducing our exposure more generally. I'm not saying avoid triggering here. I'm saying limit exposure to the stress and trauma to begin with. Limiting how much overtime you take on, how many additional projects you commit to, and so on, can help to reduce the likelihood that you will be put in positions to have the affiliations created from the get-go. We'll be talking more about trigger prevention strategies in a couple of weeks, so know that we'll circle back to this if you're keen to have some tangible tools to support this. The third thing we can take from Seligman's study is that we need to step over our own proverbial fences and put in the reps to achieve extinction. Carefully. The thing about triggers is that they aren't actually harbingers of traumatic events. Our brain has paired the triggering stimuli with this series of events that played out and was felt as stressful or traumatizing. But this random smell or image or feeling does not in and of itself bring terrible, awful, traumatic things along with it. The bell, in the case of the dogs, is not dangerous on its own. This is the problem with avoidance. When we avoid triggers, we leave that pairing as is. If the researchers hadn't rung the bell without administering the shock a bunch of times, the dogs might have gone home and peed on the floor whenever the doorbell rang because the connection was still intact. Out of a dislike for peed on rugs, the owners might have disconnected the doorbell to save everyone the stress and trouble. But this further entrenches the connection as long-standing and doesn't give it a chance to unpair. The key with extinction is that the stimuli that was paired to the stressful event, i.e. the trigger, needs to be experienced multiple times within a context that is safe. That's right, as we've often identified on the show, safety is key. And this is essentially the working theory behind exposure therapy as a primary approach to trauma processing and trigger reduction. By exposing ourselves to triggers within contexts that are felt and experienced as safe, we give ourselves the opportunity to unlearn helplessness and extinguish conditioned connections. Now, there are a few very important pieces that I want you to hear before you go out and start throwing yourself into the worst trigger-provoking experiences in an effort to clear them. Number one, for exposure to work, it has to happen with safety intact. Your brain needs to be able to keep the prefrontal cortex on throughout the exposure. If it can't, then you are re-traumatizing rather than extinguishing. You are hurting and not helping. Don't do it. Number two, the best way to help our brain keep safety and the prefrontal cortex online is by making exposure gradual. Don't start with the worst of the worst. Scale it way back. And as each step toward the harder triggering gets easier and feels safer, you can up the ante a bit. And number three, There are no shortcuts. 
extinguishing through exposure can take time, sometimes a long time. If you've been exposed to certain traumatic events repeatedly where the triggers connected to it have overlap, then it will likely take longer to get your brain on board with believing that maybe this trigger doesn't mean bad things are coming all of the time. This will also be a longer process if any of the triggering is connected to events that were from childhood or were interpersonal harm as opposed to random accident or other non-interpersonal events. Our brains store childhood stress and trauma experiences as well as interpersonal ones with a higher degree of sensitivity than events we experience in adulthood or that are non-interpersonal. So let's nail down a conclusion about the avoidance dance. While avoidance is a natural response provoked by our brain to try to reduce our experience of distress and is used by your brain to try to remove you from situations that it perceives as being possibly related to something bad that could happen again, given previous experiences, choosing avoidance doesn't tend to solve any problems long-term. In fact, it can enhance them. If we continually avoid, we grow our perception of fear. We further entrench a story of fear in connection to the triggering thing. And as we do this, the fear will inevitably generalize. It will go from being triggered by driving the car to thinking about driving the car. And as it generalizes, our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as we continue to be exposed to new stress or trauma-provoking events in a line of work where it's never-ending, the risks of more triggers is ever-present. And this is how we move into the gradual accumulation of traumatic exposure, triggering and dysregulation of the nervous system that leads us into bigger issues like PTSD. That said, while avoidance isn't going to solve problems and can make them worse, We also need to be careful to not go to extremes in the other direction, either. Throwing ourselves into traumatic reminders without skills and the intention to keep our prefrontal cortex online runs the risk of re-traumatization, so we need to tread really carefully. And this is why it's an avoidance dance. It's nuanced and careful. It also calls for some skills to bring to the party. And that is where we're headed next week, into the skills for trigger management and the steps you can practice to master the dance. If you're keen to get into it before next week, you can find a link in the show notes from today's episode for my free Managing Trauma Triggers workbook. It'll walk you through tools for trigger management that you can use to get a jump on practicing. If you missed last week, I also want to give a heads up for those of you who have been waiting to jump into the next round of the Self-Care Dare 5-Day Challenge for first responders and frontline workers, your next chance is coming up. We'll be launching registration for the Dare one week from today on February 15th. If you're a new listener and you don't know about the Dare, here's what you need to know. The Dare is a five-day challenge that invites participants to build a killer self-care plan to help protect and support sustainability both at work and in your life. You get short daily videos that cover five key domains of self-care, along with worksheets and guides to help you develop and implement your own personalized self-care plan. 
You also get access to a private Facebook group where we connect, discuss challenges, problem solve, and celebrate successes together. And just for fun, I love giving away a few prizes along the way to keep you engaged and motivated. Because investing in yourself in this kind of way is so important, and I want to make sure that you see it all the way through. You're worth that. If you're not sure what you can get out of just five days, I want to let you know that our previous participants have raved about the content and the support, and many have reached out long after completing to share about the ongoing value it's brought to their lives. So if you're curious but in doubt, I double dare you to try it. It's only $10 and you get to keep access to everything even after the five days are done. If you're ready to invest a few coffees worth of cash and a week's worth of your time into your wellness, keep your eyes peeled. We'll be posting about it on our social media and to our email list. If you haven't already, follow me on social media or sign up for the Self-Care Dare waitlist on our podcast webpage to get notified of when registration goes live. I'll add that we're planning on capping registrations this time around, so be sure to register early to claim your spot. I really hope you'll join me for it. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss where you can follow me or tag me or message me or comment, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. I am, as always, grateful that many of you are keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others on the front lines. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all of the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide to help facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of these pieces available to you guys because the work you do really matters, but more than that, you really matter, and we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of the work. So use it and share it, and until next time, Stay safe.